Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. On today's podcast, we're going to be covering some pretty important topics for people who are running forest educator programs. And this includes wilderness summer camps, after school program, people who are doing forest schools, forest bathing, nature therapy, adventure programs, bushcraft programs, workshops, whatever, because we're going to be talking about marketing. This is the Forest Educator Spotlight, which is the Forest Entrepreneur Part 2. And if you've listened to the first Forest Entrepreneur, we covered a lot of very broad topics with a lot of, I moved around a lot, laying out the groundwork. But in this program, we're going to very specifically talk about marketing and communication and talk about some of the things that I've learned over the years, both direct for my direct experience and also things I've learned from other coaches that I found to be true. And I'm hoping that it will really help you. And I really hope that it is something that will at least start you to think about marketing in a different way. Now, most marketing campaigns, if you will, are usually looked at by wilderness and nature people as something negative because we see it as, oh, we're going to be like these corporate Burger King ads or McDonald's ads and the mattress, like all these things that just, they're just like pouring these messages, pounding us with the latest car or whatever. And I want to just say that if that's you, that's okay. I, most people find that annoying and most of the time it just blends into the background. You don't really pay attention to how many mattress ads there are until all of a sudden one day you need a mattress and then you're like, oh, hey, oh, look, there's a sale or all of a sudden you start paying attention. And then as soon as you get a mattress, you go back to sleep again and you just let that play in the background. But I get it that you don't want to be one of those people and you don't want to do that to your friends. You don't want to do that to your customers and everything else. However, when you are running these programs, when you are doing the work you're doing, you have to believe in that work enough to overcome your discomfort at putting out your message. If you care about kids and you want to help them or anyone really, it doesn't have to be just kids, but if you care about them and you have something that's really good and you know will help them, and then you go, I don't really want to let anybody know about it because they might be annoyed with me, then you're not, your belief in your program isn't that strong. And if your belief in the program isn't that strong, you need to buckle up and figure out how to get it strong. Read some articles about the mental health crisis that's going on in colleges, in schools, in workplace, with adults, with older adults, with children, with very young children. It's crazy right now. So if you somehow think that the work you're doing isn't needed, just do some Google searches and you're going to be really awakened very fast to the number of reasons why we need your work. And there are people all over this country, this world who are struggling and could really benefit from your work. So do that, get whatever, have some spinach. That's an ancient pop, uh, reference that most people won't know. Have a smoothie. Do something, feel good, and then get ready and, and just work on that message that you have and believe in what you do. If you can put your work 
forward in front of you, it's much less difficult to do this because the work that you're doing is really important. And it's really about that. It's not really about you. When you market it, oftentimes you think, oh, it's me. Oh, they're going to get sick of seeing me. They're going to get sick about hearing about my stuff and all that. The people that are sick of it will just either scroll on by. They'll click unfollow you if they're friends of yours and they're tired of hearing about whatever. Oh, there's an opening for a program or something. Like they'll just unfollow you and you won't even know about it. And really, most of the time, people will just scroll by. And if they really don't like it, they probably will just unfriend you. But And you probably won't even know. So don't just please just let go and just realize that the work you're doing is more important than your emotional discomfort, even though it's scary. And I know it's easy for me to say that, but you'll get used to it. I swear it will get easier and you'll get used to it. So when we're talking about marketing, this is difficult because many times we are much better at animal tracking, wild foods, playing with kids and learning about stream wildlife, all, all the things that we're good at, wilderness survival and getting in tune with our senses and all the things we're really good at are typically not seen as marketing and, and doesn't really feel like these marketing concepts that I'm going to share are part of that ecosystem. But I'm going to tell you why that's wrong. And so I'm going to use my experiences in learning wilderness survival to illustrate that they are not incompatible. In fact, they're actually essential to our survival as a human species. You're going to get a few stories that I'm going to share that I think will help us to see it in a different way and have a different understanding of it and maybe get it whenever someone jumps in and starts learning about coaching or about online programs or about whatever. In modern business terms, there's a lot of jargon and that coaching speak thing with like weird, weird definitions and stuff that we're not familiar with. We don't have to worry about all that. We have, we can have our own jargon and we can use that and we'll be able to feel a lot better about it because it doesn't feel slick or that you're trying to pull a fast one over someone or whatever. So here are some concepts that I think are going to help. So number one, we're going to talk for a minute about ecological niches. So in an ecosystem, say the Northeastern woodlands, or we could say the deserts of the Southwest, whatever that ecosystem is, there are openings and gaps and there is places where there's food, places where there's not much food, places where there's a lot of sun, places where there's very little sun. And there's, man, it's just, it's so diverse and so layered. And that is what our culture is. We have just an incredible array of types of people, interests, ages, people with varying different abilities and cultural preferences and everything. So when you look at your marketing, you want to look at it from an ecological perspective in a way. And you're looking at it as something where you can say, okay, what is it that I do and who do I help? Who gets the most benefit for the most of the time for the things I'm doing? And you get to pick and choose where you fall in that ecological system. Because you could do wilderness programs that teach wilderness skills or nature awareness skills. You could teach it to prisoners. You could teach it to people that are 
diabetics. You could teach it to people in a nursing home. You could teach it to preschool children. Like you get to pick where you feel the most comfortable and where you feel like you can do the most good. And all of those things will come together for you to find your niche, to find your sweet spot. And that's okay. That's good. It's good for you to know where you feel you best belong. And there are niches. When you think about how diverse our world is, there's water in a cave under the underground, a mile down below. And there's like a blind fish that's never seen the sun swimming around down there doing its thing. What a crazy, that's a very obscure niche. But there's also those vent worms and creatures at the bottom of the great rift of in the deep in the Pacific ocean, miles below the surface. And there, there's a whole ecosystem down there where the pressure is just unbelievable and the temperatures are incredibly cold or whatever, and no daylight as well. And at the same time, you can go up on top of mountains and there's eagles and there's certain kinds of rodents and things that live way up high above the timberline. People and animals have found ways to occupy those different niches. And you get to choose where you want to be. Where do you want to live? Where do you, what do you want to do? Where you work? Think about it in that way. And then think about who you like to work with and then where do they live and start to learn about them just like you would in a field guide, learning about Eastern cottontails or Northern flying squirrels. Like you're going to, you could just find what you're looking for that people that fit that criteria. And then just begin to learn about them, where they shop, where they go, what they do, what they prefer, what kind of foods they prefer. When I think of like my summer camp, I went, oh yeah, the people that work at, that came to my summer camp, the moms who signed their children up, they shopped at Whole Foods. They loved yoga. They were, loved to have their children in a really good nurturing environment. That was very important to them to have certain things in their kids' lives, like to support them with sports and going on trips to backpacking and nature and everything else. So they were, there's a certain kind of quality of someone who believes that. And ideally you don't want to be in a niche that's so focused and small that you only have one customer. So your program may struggle if you're trying to rely on a blind minnow swimming around in a river under underground. Think of it that way if you can't and, and choose wisely. And if your gap, if your niche is too narrow, it's okay to expand that and to try out reaching out into other communities. One of the things I'm also going to tell you is that when you are designing your, your programs and looking at your work, it's really important to use what I call the buffalo versus the squirrel concept. Now in the wilderness, if you go out and you're like, living out there and trying to feed your family or your community, you're basically trying to solve the calorie problem. The calorie problem is that it takes most of the time, three to 4,000 calories a day for somebody who's actively out in the wilderness, trying to pull everything together. And that's a lot of calories that you have to replace. You're constantly hunting, gathering, looking for food, fishing, doing whatever you've got to do. And in order to get enough calories, You've got most of the time you're going to be looking at hunting in those very early rewilding class pre-civilization cultures. And a squirrel, if you go out and get one, can feed your family maybe for one night. You can make a soup, you can do your thing. Everyone will get a little bit of benefit. And, but the problem with squirrels is that you need a lot of them. 
And so if you're a squirrel hunter, you can get a squirrel with a pretty easy, like a kid's bow. You can have a kid's bow with a wooden arrow with no point on it other than sharpened stick, and you can get squirrels. I've done it. Lots of people have done it. On the other side of it, you have a buffalo or an elk or a deer or some other large uh, mammal. Now, if you go hunt buffalo, you better be ready. It is not the same as getting a squirrel. You've got to have special tools you, that to penetrate that buffalo hide. You've got to have a really powerful bow. You've got to have an arrow that has an incredibly sharp tip on it that involves flint napping or glass or, or, or something, bone. You've got to be really good, and you also have to be prepared for whatever's going to happen after that animal gets killed or you, you get it. Then you have to like have all this, these tools to actually preserve the meat and do everything. It involves a lot of work to do something like that. However, the payoff yeah. is that you can eat for the whole winter on a buffalo. Whereas if you have squirrels, you're going to be going out every day trying to come home with one or two squirrels or grouse or rabbits or whatever, something small. And so the idea for your business is that you want to have ideally a number of small programs that are like squirrels that introduce you to people. They're fairly easy. You go there, you spend an hour, you visit, you do a wild edible walk, or you do things to get people to know about you. And they're easy. It's not a high commitment for anybody to attend any of your programs. But then ideally you have also a program that is your buffalo. And that buffalo will really feed you if you can fill the people in that. So you want to have something that will sustain you. And so that's really important to do. It's very difficult to do, a, a, make a living selling like one-off programs where it's just, oh, here's a class and people can come for a day and then they're gone. And then you have to do all this work to get people in another program down the road. Really important for you to think about the amount of energy that it takes to do all that work to get squirrels or rabbits or whatever, it's a lot. And so ideally you want to think about the model of how, what you're doing and what model will be the best one for you so that you can have steady income that will really help you. Obviously there are some native groups back in the day where did a lot of farming and so they were able to do things where they were investing a lot of energy into those plants. And then at some point that energy will come back to them. Lots of different ways to think about this, but ultimately everything is going to come down to, do you have an, the ability to get enough calories, to get enough cash flow, to get enough donations, or to get whatever you need to sustain you to be able to do the work you do? Anyway, I could go on and on, but I, I hope you're getting what I'm trying to lay out here. So the next part I want to share with you involves me telling you this story first. I studied a lot with Tom Brown. And I really practiced my wilderness skills very, I don't want to say religiously, but I was very dedicated and I did, and I practiced every day and I was just really focused on learning them. And one of the problems that I always had was that I, it was difficult to learn how to get food. And I remembered that Tom had said, most people who live close to the earth to get enough food at, but when you're living out there by yourself, you really need to rely on trapping because Trapping is a way to have 10 chances or 20 chances at getting something to eat rather than hunting, which is, gives you just one chance. And you can set 10 or 20 traps and then come back and see what you got. And if you get really good at it, you can set less traps. 
but you can find a way to hurt those calories much easier with less energy expenditure and time. So it's a win. All of our ancestors trapped and I'll be really honest here. Um, please, I, for any of you that are, you know, like I love animals. Like if you're something, if you're listening to this, please just know that this is a metaphor. And uh, honestly, I don't really want, I don't really want to kill anything either myself. So I'm in that mindset, but I want you to just think of the idea here. So I was going out and practicing to make traps that Tom had showed us. And I just could not, I could get good at carving them and setting them and finding spots, but I never really got anything out of them. And I felt really discouraged. And so I went to a class with Tom and I asked him at one point, like the second day in, I said, Hey, Tom, I've been tracking for a while, trying my best at it, but I just don't know how to get better because I just feel like I've hit a wall. And one of the things that survival books will say is, oh, if you're trying to catch an animal with bait, to bait your trap, you should use peanut butter because most animals love peanut butter. And I thought, this, that's stupid because if I had peanut butter, why would I give it to the animals? And number one, why would I have peanut butter? Because probably I would either eat it or why would I even carry it? I don't carry a jar of peanut butter in my backpack. It's not in my car. It would get rancid. So it was just, it's just one of those dumb things that survival books talk about that really only works if you're trapping right around your house and you have peanut butter at your house. But in the wilderness, you just aren't going to have that. You'll be lucky if you have a knife. And if you have a knife, you can carve your trap and set it up. But you then have to find bait. And I just did not know what to do. Even I think in Tom Brown's book, he'll say, the general rule is don't bait with corn in a cornfield. Meaning if you're trying to catch a rabbit and you're at the edge of a field that's full of clover or alfalfa, you're not going to have much luck if you put a piece of clover on that hook. Because all the alfalfa or clover or corn is all about what food is available. It's about what they have in front of them. And in that area, like for example, if you worked at a Chinese restaurant and you ate Chinese food all the time, it would be always available. So for you, if I came out and said, Hey, I'm going to set a trap for you and I'm going to put an egg roll there. You'd be like, yeah, whatever. I eat egg rolls all the time. I'm around it. I just have no interest in it anymore. But if I put a Snickers bar or I put something out, whatever it is, there's something that you, if I got to know who you are, it would definitely jump out and go, Ooh, that's something different. Let's do it. But everybody's different. Anyway, I didn't really know what to put because guess what? There was no egg rolls out in the woods either. And so I talked to Tom and when I talked to Tom in a class, this isn't me like walking up to him and having a quiet moment with him and him putting his arm around my shoulder and going, Hey Rick, I'm going to help you. It's usually me asking a question in a class of 80 other people and getting the answers. So I don't want to imply that Tom Brown personally mentored me and all that. I was in a crowd. So anyway, I asked him, I said, Hey Tom, how do we bait ant for rabbits or squirrels or anything? Because I just don't know what to do. I don't know what I would even put on my little bait stick or whatever. And so Tom looked at me for a while and he was like, you're kidding, right? And I go, no, I, I said, I really don't know what I would do. And he goes, oh, he goes, that's easy. He goes, it's, it's called the setting up a bait line. You just take a stick or you can take a stick or you can do a line, a string. He goes, I usually use string because it's easy. You take a uh, string about three feet long and then you tie bundles of available food that is in a rabbit's, in, he goes, we'll just use rabbits. He goes, in a rabbit's environment, 
they can pretty much get anything that's on the ground. So anything that's on the ground is, you know, that's if you just every day you ate plain Cheerios all day, every day, every day. He goes, but all the time, the rabbit is up above it. There are trees that have these beautiful buds and leaves and bark and stuff that they cannot reach. They can only reach it if a leaf, if a branch falls down or if a tree falls down, and then they'll come in and chew the heck out of it and eat every bit of it that they can. Because they're like, oh my gosh, everything is right there, but I can't access it. It's if you walk by and you're like, hey, there's the cheesecake factory. And you're like, I don't have any money. And you're like, okay, there's everything. They have this massive menu. And you're like, none of it is available to me because I don't have $18 for a chicken burrito. So rabbits can't get it. And so Tom was saying, you just take some buds from a tree. He goes, pick the, pick some buds from the south side of the tree that gets a lot of light that are really fat and thick with, they really got a lot of color in them and they look plump. He goes to you, they just look like sticks, but after you get a while, you'll get a feeling for which ones are actually nutritious and look really good. And that's true. He said, so gather a little handful of those, go and find another tree nearby, gather some buds that they can't reach, go find another tree. He goes, you can get them put five or six of those on and then tie that wherever you have a lot of rabbits. And he goes, you don't have to put it in the middle of the trail. You can put it like under a bush or alongside a log or something, but put it out of the way, but someplace where they're going to see it. And he goes, I said, how are they going to find that? And he goes, they can smell incredibly well. He goes, they can smell you. They can smell those. When you crack all those branches and they're there, that is just like, it's going to smell a pizza cooking in the oven. It's going to just drift all over that area. And he goes, they will find it. He goes, if there's a lot of rabbits there. So that's what I did. I put them all out and did that. And I found that sometimes, I, I mean, I put one of them out and then Tom said to me, you know, I came back and I went, Tom, nothing got it. And he goes, well, how did you, how many did you put out? And I go, just one. And he goes, put 10 of them out, man. What are you doing? Because that way you don't have to wait for and take forever going day by day to each thing. Put 10 of these out all in different places and see what you can find. I said, he says, you're going to get really f good at identifying where rabbits are and where they're feeding, because now by putting it out in 10 places, there's going to be four of them or three of them that are going to be right on. And then you're going to learn and you're going to get better at it. And I said, great. So I put out 10 and lo and behold, six of them didn't have very much action, but there was a little nibble here or there and nothing. One of them, I think, got tangled up in a deer's hooves and was like laying in the bushes. But then all of a sudden, those other three or four, there was, they had some, one of them had everything was eaten and the, and half of the string. The only way I could find that it was there was that there were little branches there that they had chewed. And it was just a little woody, the tiny little woody splinters left over that they didn't eat the whole thing on. And I thought, oh, wow, this, this, this would be a good place to set a trap. These animals went crazy for that. And then the others had certain, there were certain ones that were really delectable and there was ones that they left. And then there's ones where they ate about half. And so I was able to identify which ones. And then I set up a trap with that. I didn't make it a lethal trap because I was at Tom's place. So I just set up a trap and I said, all right, let me set this trap and see if it'll get something. And sure enough, rabbits came and got it and ate it. Didn't, I didn't kill it because I took out the lethal components, but it was awesome. And suddenly I went, oh, I have an actual system to be able to get better at trapping, understand what animals like, understand how they, that reality that there's all that food around them and they can't get it. Like all this stuff was really eye-opening for me. 
And I wanted to just tell you that marketing is the same way. You're basically going to create a program, do the best you can, put something together you think is good, and then you're going to put it out and see who, who signs up, who likes it on Facebook, who shares it on, on Instagram, or you're going to be able to see what and get data. And you're going to then be able to know it. You're not going to wonder if they like it. You're going to know if somebody actually shares your post, they're into you. They're into what you're doing. They're into this whole idea. If they don't, then it just sits there. If it just sits there, it tells you one of two things. The people that are seeing it are not into it. Or it also tells you that you're the people that you're showing it to are the raw are not your people. Okay. Does that make sense? So in other words, if you put out a flyer at a hardware store and you don't get anybody signing up for any of your programs, but then you put it at the library, you put it at the health food store, or you put it at a yoga center, all of a sudden you get a ton. Now, you know, okay, this yoga place, that's that, those are my people or health food store, my people, or you could say I'm doing a wilderness prepping program and you put it at the hardware store or tractor supply and tons of people are signing up and you're just like, right on, I'm finding my people. So the idea here is that you're trying to find who your community is. And then you're also trying to find what are they hungry for? Because people are hungry for experiences in today's world. People are lonely. People want to learn. Sometimes they don't know if they want to learn, but they just get intrigued by the idea. And so sometimes people just want to do something different and they want, they need some help. And they also need help to get off their phone or get off the off digital screens or whatever and just have a different experience. So whatever you're offering, it's really important that you also then look at how is it presented and all of those things. So these are some of the lessons that I can say from a survival point of view are really similar. And in fact, maybe almost exactly the same. The difference is that in wilderness survival, there isn't like a slick marketing guy going, hey, how much is it going to take for me to put you in this Toyota Corolla? And it's like this, there's like a distaste kind of thing. If you don't get enough calories in the wilderness, two things are going to happen. You're either going to have to be rescued by somebody who does have a lot of calories, or you're going to die. Like that's, that's the end game. Almost every wilderness trip that I've ever been on, you pretty much lose a pound a day. In the, if you're doing the skills and everything, that's even if you're eating as much food as you can find out there, you're losing about a pound a day. So be aware that the same thing is true for your business. If you don't have enough flow of calories, money, donation, tuition, students, whatever it is, your business will fail because you are not then you're not going to be doing anything. You can't teach people that aren't there, but you can't watch invisible kids that aren't there crawl on a log for three hours at your forest preschool. So you've got to get those people and you got to find out how to connect to them. Another survival, what should I say, concept that I think really has helped me in pretty much everything in my life is what I call the art of questioning, which is an essential tracking philosophy or approach. And the art of questioning is basically saying to yourself, as you are observing things in nature, things by the Creek, looking at animal tracks or the way a tree is bent over or anything in your environment, it's the idea here is to say, what is this telling me? Most people walk around, they're just like, oh, nature. 
I'm going to jog and I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to go for a hike. And then, oh, I'm just here. And I look at the view and the whole time they're there, they're just thinking like, should I watch that movie tomorrow? Or should I go to my friend's house? Like you're just, you've got your human experience running all the time in your head. And then once in a while you turn and go, oh, look, a nice view. That'll make a picture for my Instagram snap. And then you're back to internal monologue. With tracking and the art of questioning, they're basically saying, what is happening in my environment? What am I missing? Why is that tree leaning? Why is this puddle got these like little holes in the bottom of it that look like little beak marks or whatever? What else is in here? Oh, here's some animal tracks. When were these take, uh, laid down? When did the animal come by? What were they doing? Which way were they going? How big were they? How small were they? What all of these things start to flow. And when you have this art of questioning, the concept here is to say, how could I find out what the answer is? Number one, to ask those good questions. And then two, start to find out, okay, how badly do you want to know the answer? And then if you do begin that process of getting the data and getting and backing up your hypothesis of what happened. And you have to do that in marketing as well, because you have to get data versus telling stories in your head. A lot of times when we try to run programs as forest educators, we'll try to run a program. It doesn't really fill. And then we feel bad. We feel rejected. We're like, Hey, not enough people cared about my program and no one see here's where I live. And nobody cares about basket making. And I guess nobody wants to learn from me. It's like a personal rejection for you. And I can just say from experience that there are probably a things you did wrong and B, if you fix them, you would have all the students you needed. You'd have, you'd be turning people away if you did it right. Or you may have to move because you might just be living in an area like the, where the rabbits are, where there's just no rabbits. So the art of questioning will help you determine that. And you have to look at it dispatch. You cannot take doing things in business personally. You can't take doing stuff in the wilderness personally. If you set a trap and the rabbit doesn't go for it, okay, the rabbit isn't rejecting you personally. Your trap wasn't good enough. Or sometimes animals are just smarter than you think. And they just go, eh, I'm not falling for that crap. Like people are smart. Animals are smart. People will think you have to figure stuff out and, and you cannot spend a lot of energy on the emotional side of how does it feel? And you know, how, oh, they're rejecting me. It's me. It's victim. It's not about you. It's about them. And it's about you understanding what that is telling you. If you put out a flyer and you don't get any responses and nobody likes it or whatever, that's okay. It doesn't mean the content's bad. It just means that it's not the right format. Maybe instead of putting the whole workshop description in Hopi or Chinese, you could put it in English. So in a lot of cases, it's because people don't understand what you're offering. And if somebody sees a, a flyer or your website or a post or whatever, and they don't really get it, the, it's a no. If you put out your website and you don't have your photo on there so they can see who they're going to spend three days in the woods with, it's a no. I know it is for me. I don't, most people don't want to learn something that bad that they will discount the basic due diligence of getting a feel for a vibe for that person and whether you want to hang out with them. So in order for people to make a decision on your, on attending your program, you, they have to have those three things. They have to know you, they have to like you, and they have to trust you. And that takes time to develop that. And if they don't have that, let's be real. 
if you needed to go scuba diving, you don't have to know and trust your scuba instructor because you're just, you're probably only going to spend a few hours with them. So it may not, it may not really matter, but in cases where they voluntarily are trying to come and want to learn from you, they have to have that know and trust. And if you don't fulfill that, then it's a no. So if there's no photo of you, it's a no. If they don't know where you're located, it's a no. If you start spouting off like, oh, you're going to, we're going to learn this technique and that technique. And they don't know what that means. They're going to go, this sounds complicated. And I only have one weekend off, you know, a, a week. And it sounds like this basket making class is going to be really technical. And they're like, okay, I'm out. Nobody wants to go and burn a thousand gallons of energy trying to figure out how to track at the highest level on their vacation slash weekend. Yeah. They want to learn some new things, but most people don't really need to learn everything about tracking in two days. They just want to learn and have a good time and get, have some time that's intensive and then have some downtime and then go do something else. And then just be able to unwind and eat some good food and be in a beautiful place with some really fun people. So you, sometimes the mistake that wilderness people make is they try to then make the content even more intense or even more packed. And I can tell you right now, that is not the answer. Okay. It's only the answer. If somebody is, I'm leaving for the South pole and I need to learn everything about wilderness survival in two days, then yeah, those people are going to want to get everything they can because they only have two days before they're, before they ship out. The 99% of your clients are not that way. I did have a, I did have a class one time where a mother sent her two 30 year old boys to my school to do a winter survival class because they were leaving for Sweden and they were going to go like hike across Svalbard Island or whatever. And she was trying to get me to talk sense into them or whatever. And I only had two days with them. And so we did a ton of stuff and I was trying to teach them and help them kind of figure things out. And that's the exception. That's the only time that I ever had somebody that was like, we need to learn everything. Now, not, most people don't, they don't want to be working on wilderness skills from seven in the morning to 1130 at night. I did that with Tom Brown because that's the only thing he offered. He had one menu, Tom's way, and that's it. And he had one, one setting for flow of information, fire hose. That's his choice that most people don't want to learn as intensively as that. Just think about your people and then just understand that if people don't get it or it sounds like it's not quite a fit, then it's a no. So you have to then just not be, don't be afraid to go back into the drawing board and just try something else. Try something else. You just got to keep doing that until you figure it out. And you need to get data on that. Like you need to ask people, hey, have you seen my flyer? What do you think of this? Would you take this? Hand somebody or send somebody a post. Do it privately. But send it to 10 people that you think would be interested in taking a class and just go, hey, if money was no object, would you take this program? Does this sound good? And if not, could you tell me why? And if you do like it, tell me why. What is your favorite part about it? And get data, get real answers from people. Talk to people you've taken programs that you've delivered programs for and say, hey, can I call you up and ask you a few questions just about the program you did and what you liked about it? Because... If you get real data, it will keep you from making up stories about how you're the victim, nobody gets it, nobody cares, and all this stuff that pretty much is just not true because that, that what you, we do naturally is we try to deflect from that feeling of shame. 
and we're like, oh, that feels, it feels bad. And people don't like me. Oh, I don't like that feeling. So I'm going to say, oh yeah, it's them. They're the ones. Teachers sometimes do this with kids. They'll be like, oh, this kid, these kids don't care about math. These kids are bad. And these kids, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, it has nothing to do with it. The kids are kids. They just don't understand what you're doing because you're not adapting it. You're, you're trying to do something that worked in 1972 and now doesn't work anymore because these kids are totally different and you've never changed your handouts and your approach. So yeah, go ahead, blame the kids, but you're wrong. That's a fantasy you're making up. That's just a story you're telling, but it's not true. So don't make up stories, solve the problem. That's the key element here. One of my coaches talked a lot about what he calls cracking the code. He goes, when you understand your clients and you know, the people you work for that you deliver good programs for, and you understand what they really love about it. And you understand how to talk about it in a way that gets them excited and wants to join you. And then you set your website up to tell that or, and communicate that effectively. He goes, you will then crack the code and you will then have a steady flow of people who, when they see your website, they see your posts, they see your flyers, wherever it is, they will be excited to want to sign up and do something with you or sign their kids up or whatever. And he goes, but you have to keep working till you crack that code. And he goes, you will know when you did it, when you do it. And until then you just have to keep working on no trust and playing with different messages until you really get it. One thing I'm going to mention too, is that in, in the wilderness, there are lots of times where you're just like, by necessity, you have to adapt to things. Sometimes you're like, Hey, I'm going to go do this thing. And then all of a sudden you look over and you go, Ooh, there's a big bank of clouds coming and they've been growing all day long. And this is a big storm and it's probably going to be two days of rain. Okay. Whoa. I got to change my plans. You have to be able to pivot and adapt and experiment with lots and lots of new things because your, whatever you do will have to change. When I ran my camp in the beginning, I ran it a certain way. After about six years, I had to change it a little bit. After about another six years, I changed probably every five years. I changed my camp because the children were changing back in the day. The kids showed up. They already knew how to sharpen a knife, pack a backpack, tie knots. They knew how to set up a tent. They knew how to do certain things that today's children for the most part, don't know how to do. And I had to just adapt and go, oh, okay. Instead of us offering, just carving something and making a uh, something, we have to add a block or of time where we teach safety and basic carving skills, and then give them time to relax. And we also have to make sure that they have athletic tape to put around their thumbs so that they don't get blisters. Like we had to do a lot of things that were different than what it was 20 years ago. And the same is true. Now you just have to pivot a lot and you have to adapt a lot and you just want to test something, evaluate it and chart your results. And then you want to rinse and repeat. You want to just continue to do that just because you run, you put something out and then nobody goes, doesn't mean again, that, that people don't like it. You just might not be in front of the right crowd. So you have to try something several times, see if it was working. If it's not back to the drawing board, try something else, see if it's working, keep doing those things. Now, just, just to be clear, I'm not saying that if you're doing your forest school, you need to radically adapt it every time. If it's, if you're having trouble, 
you may just have to move if there's not enough kids to fill the program the way you want it to be filled, to be able to make the income you need to make and everything else. You have to do radical things. Tom Brown would say to us, he goes, if you're trying to trap or survive in an area and there's no food, the shelters, there's just like two inch long grass and a bunch of rocks and you're at, you're at 14,000 feet above treeline. He was like, get the hell out of there. Go somewhere else, go downhill, find a forest, find a meadow, find someplace else where there's more wildlife and more stuff in that you, to choose from. And he's just like, you might have to travel. When he sets trapping lines, he was like, yeah, usually I'd set a trapping line and it, I would walk five miles, putting these traps at the best places over five miles. You better be willing to walk and travel to get the food if the food is not right close to you. And if you're finding that you don't like traveling, you might have to move to where that food is. Another thing I'm going to mention here is do not assume that because somebody has a nice website or a really beautiful Instagram feed that they're doing really well financially. Okay. You don't know just because a website's beautiful, just because it's got a bunch of bells and whistles and looks really good does not mean it's converting for them. Okay. So don't assume that you can just copy anybody and that it will work. And if you do find somebody who's got a website that's working, it probably is, has more to do with the location and the income levels per capita in that area than it even is that their website is perfect. Okay. Location is a very big factor in terms of the financial success of a lot of programs. If you're running a program in Austin, Texas, you're probably going to do okay. If you're running it in the uh, suburbs of Boston, probably going to do well. Suburbs of Maryland. If you're going to do something, if you're around people that have the enough cash to be able to do the things, you're probably going to do well. But if you're like doing it in a town of 300 people in uh, Southeast or Southwest Ohio, it might be really tough going. Okay. So you're, you could copy somebody from Texas and copy their website word for word, put it out there. And it doesn't matter how many people would think it's great, they're not going to sign up because just isn't enough people. I hate to break it to you, but if you're living in some place and there's not enough people and you want to do this work, it's okay to move. I'm giving you permission. Okay. Or conversely, you could travel because most people live within an hour and 15 minutes of a, of a major city. So if you're living in the country, set up a program one day a week, two days a week at a homeschooling group in a city somewhere. And make that be your fishing trip that, that like in the wilderness, I would sometimes go, Hey, I'm going to take a day on a hike really far out, go to this lake, fish and come back. So make it your fishing trip day or your hunting trip day or your bountiful gathering day to go to get acorns from someplace far away. So just think of it as you gathering acorns in Galveston, Texas or Nashville or Santa Barbara. So think of it that way, go to where the people are, do your fishing, come back. And you can do, you can run successful programs that way for sure. Let's see. The last thing I'm going to mention here is it's really important that you think of each program you do and every variation of that program as its own separate entity. We ran summer camps for 10 years before we started running school groups, class trips for Waldorf schools and private schools. And when they came, they said, Hey, could you run a program for us? We want to go out and do wilderness stuff. We'll come to your program, your place and everything. It looked the, on the surface. It looked just like our summer camps. 
So we just set up a program kind of like our summer camps and ran it that way. However, there were very distinct differences in the programming and the way we worked that were different from my summer camp. And when I was also pitching that program to the teachers and parents, I had to communicate it a little differently. And so it's really important to look at that. Same is true for an after-school program. When we started doing after-school programs, we had to change that program a lot because we were going into schools with fluorescent lights and cinder block buildings and that whole vibe that the school has. And so we had to then think, how can we come in and do our thing for an hour and a half or two hours? And how do we talk about it? How do we present it? How do we, what we do is just going to fundamentally be altered a little bit. We're altering the recipe to get a different product. And you have to think of it as its own thing. Marketing wise, it's its own thing. In many cases, if you're going to try to do three or four things that are really different, you really want to have sometimes a separate website for each of those programs so that people, when they land there, feel like they're in the right place. Okay. It's like, you don't want to be one of those restaurants where they go, Hey, we have Chinese food. We have Italian, we have Thai, we have American food. And we also have, you know, uh, whatever German food, like you pretty much look at that menu and go, I'm not sure I'm going to trust that this Italian food is going to taste really authentic Italian because they're also have general South chicken. And I'm not sure that's going to be Chinese food low. You know what I mean? It's too many. They're trying to be good at too many things and it makes you suspicious. So it's much better to go and say, this is what we do here. We have it. If you want to have a restaurant that has all those things, you're better off just having three restaurants and running three different businesses, which is a lot of work. But think about that. See what you can do with any of this. I hope this is helpful for you. There's a lot more to dive into, but I think this is good to just give you some food for thought. And I really want to say that this is work, but you can solve these. You can crack the code. You can get everything you need in your flyers and in your Instagram or your websites or whatever. And you can do that. And it just takes a little work. And you don't necessarily always want to trust graphic designers because graphic designers can make something really good, but they're not, they don't necessarily run it as a business. So sometimes if you pay someone to do a lot of these things, you think, oh, I'm paying a lot of money. They should do it the right way. But oftentimes they're using a design that's three years old that doesn't really work and it doesn't convert. It might convert for some customers in some markets, but not for yours. And so even though it looks really nice, it still may not have those elements. And that's okay. You just have to then tweak it and tweak it until you figure out what will work. Please don't feel bad if you are struggling out there. This is not common knowledge for a lot of trackers and wilderness people. There's a lot more to say about it. Hey, it's a start. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.